so hungry. Hey, it's me, Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl. I am back with yet another episode of Chew the Right Thing. I am flying solo today, and that is because there is a very special episode. I have a guest, a singular guest, so I don't have Mikey and Jamie with me. I am going to be interviewing Dr. Steve Threlkeld, who I lovingly refer to as Dr. Steve. He is a friend and has been so helpful and such a source of comfort throughout this entire pandemic. He did an earlier episode of To the Right Thing where he broke down a lot of COVID facts for us. He is an infectious disease specialist, and I thought it would be great to share some of his knowledge with you. And he is going to be answering your questions that you asked today, specifically about the COVID-19 vaccine. I know this is not a food topic, and I hope that you find this episode helpful and that you like it. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Steve. Hey, Dr. Steve, how are you? It's so good to see you. Hey, Lisa, it's great to be with you again. Thank you. So I'm very excited today. We have a bunch of questions from our listeners specifically about the vaccines. So let's just jump right in. Um, Starting with, can you please go over the protection phases? Like if I am vaccinated for the first time and then I leave the vaccine clinic and I go to Starbucks and the barista sneezes on me and he's COVID positive, am I protected in any way? And um, if not, when am I protected? And what exactly is the protection process? Yeah, great question. And some of that is controversial. But what we pretty much can say is that right away after the vaccine, you're probably not going to uh, probably not protect it. It's kind of like the flu vaccine. If you get a flu vaccine on a Monday and you're exposed to the flu on a Wednesday, that wasn't the vaccine that gave you the flu. It's because you didn't get the vaccine two weeks earlier. And speaking of two weeks, about 14 days is when our current uh, approved, currently approved vaccines seem to start taking effect. But 14 days was when the people that got got the placebo, kept getting infected, and the people that got the real vaccine started to cut down on their infections. That's when you begin to get some protection. And of course, three weeks or four weeks later, depending on which vaccine you get, you really boost that protection, that partial protection up to the 95% range. So we want to get to that vaccine, but you're probably, you probably start getting some protection as little as two weeks after that first shot. And so by the time you get your second shot, would you say you're about 60% protected? Well, probably somewhere in there. Um, the, The kicker is that we don't know how long that sort of stuff lasts. So basically in the trials, they went ahead and gave the second shot, you know, three weeks later in Pfizer, four weeks in Moderna, but they didn't let people hang around uh, just to see what would happen. They went ahead and gave them the next shot because that's what they were studying. So we still don't know how long that first uh, shot really lasts. So we certainly recommend that people get it. But these days, let's face it, the vaccine rollout has not been fantastic. And so a lot of people have been delayed getting their shot. And the CDC has come out recognizing that and said, look, it's probably fine if you wait as long as you know 42 days or so after that first vaccine before you get the second, because some people may just be in a position that that's what happens. Um, but certainly, the, the, everybody would agree that the closer you come uh, to put it to put it in your world, uh, it's a recipe that tastes pretty good. You should probably cook by it um, if you can. If you can do that. <laughs> Love that. Um, and how does the double dose, like the two dose vaccines, how did they compare with the single 
double-dose Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I mean, the Johnson & Johnson, of course, the convenience of having one dose is terrific. I mean, the fact that you don't have to negotiate getting people back to the second dose, reminding folks, making sure they do it. And the other thing about the Johnson & Johnson is that it has a lot less cold storage requirements. So we can get it out to places in the world and even in our own country that it might be difficult to get vaccines uh, that need really ultra cold storage. So, so it has some great factors in that regard. The numbers on it were a little bit lower in protection than were the uh, RNA, messenger RNA platform vaccines, but it's not quite apples and apples. You know, it was later in the pandemic when it was studied and they studied some of their, uh, did some of their work over in South Africa and South America where some of these new variants are causing a bit of a problem you know, for the vaccines, maybe including the old ones. So the numbers come in a little bit lower at preventing any infections, but probably it's still much better than that 72% that we found in North America compared to the 95% with the current ones that we have. So in the, in the neighborhood of 72% in North America, but it's probably a lot better than that at preventing serious infections and deaths. It's very good at that in much the same way the flu vaccine is. So really, I mean, if we get right down to it, um, the biggest thing is to prevent deaths and serious infections, ICU stays, that sort of thing. So it's really quite good at that. It's one that I think most of us would say is still a very good vaccine uh, and one that uh, and the one that we should get out there to people. Great. And uh, about the vaccines, I have heard a lot of people saying they are having some very serious side effects after especially the second dose. Two questions. One, does the Johnson & Johnson vaccine after the first dose have those same side effects? And two, is there anything people can do? Should they medicate? And if so, when? Yeah, both good questions. You know, it's interesting because it's a lot of times it's after the second vaccine because your immune system uh, gets primed after the first vaccine. The immune system, by definition, its job is to be inhospitable to return guests. And so when it sees something <laughs> the second time that it's primed for the first time, it gets very angry. You experience that by a sore arm and some headaches and chills and so forth. Now, I had very little to anything. I had maybe a little headache and I had to convince myself even of that because I was looking for it. But other people have had, as you say, much more problematic symptoms and they can go on for 24 hours or so um, to be sure. But again, as, as the old expression goes, that tingling means it's working. Um, so you can be sure that your immune system has been awakened and is uh, and is uh, doing is doing a good job with that. And one thing to add also is that the first vaccine can give you the same sorts of symptoms as someone who's had the actual infection. Um, so anybody who's been infected in months past may get that same sort of memory boost and anger of the immune system with with the very first vaccine that they get. In hmm. terms of pre-medicating, there are a couple things about it. The second part of your question. Um, you know, the CDC doesn't recommend that you give Tylenol or Motrin before the vaccine. And the reason that's the case is twofold. Number one, there are some very small, kind of poorly understood uh, one or two studies that suggest that in kids in the first vaccine, not with the boosters, weirdly, they might have had a little lower antibody response if they pre-medicated with one of those anti-inflammatory medications. It didn't dip down to the point where it wasn't protective. It wasn't an especially large phenomenon. But just because we don't have information uh, that we can be sure that it has no adverse effect on generating antibodies in response to the vaccine, they say, look, let's be on the safe side and not give anything right before. 
that phenomenon went away as early as four hours after the vaccine. So you can take something once you develop the symptoms. And here's the other thing. Almost all the symptoms that we're talking about happen 8, 10, 12 hours afterwards. So you're probably wasting a dose of Tylenol or ibuprofen if you take it before the vaccine anyway. You probably already got that out of your system by the time you get the symptoms. Um, but if four or six hours later someone has a terrible splitting headache, do you recommend Tylenol or ibuprofen? I've heard various. I've heard don't take ibuprofen. <laughs> is that true? We don't know. I mean, it really is. I, I tend personally to take to take Tylenol before the non-steroidals because it has fewer side effects. Um, but I think it, it, it's okay. And furthermore, it's okay if you take those medications chronically and are on them anyway before the vaccine to continue on them. And the CDC would say that as well. So very honestly, whatever works works for you is probably fine after the vaccine. That is. And someone else asks, why are they calling it a vaccine? It won't protect you from getting COVID. It only shortens the time frame or seriousness of your COVID symptoms. And she also wants to know, are they still looking for a cure that will actually wipe out COVID? And how long might that take to develop? Yeah, well, uh, two very good questions. Number one, I, I think it really does protect you against COVID. I mean, when you look at the fact that no one died who got the vaccine, no one even got seriously ill, um, I think it protects you against the very biggest part of COVID. And furthermore, it protected 95% of people from having any symptoms at all. And so the only thing that we don't know for sure with those messenger RNA vaccines is how much it protects you from the so-called subclinical or asymptomatic infection. You don't know that you're sick at all. You don't know that you're infected, but you could conceivably give it to somebody else if you were still sort of get, putting out the virus from your, uh, from your respiratory tract. We don't know the absolute numbers because they just didn't look at it. They didn't go out and swab noses of people to see if they had asymptomatic infection and try to do PCRs on them. To the extent that a couple of other vaccines have tried that with AstraZeneca, they did in fact show that there was about a two-thirds decrease in the people that had asymptomatic PCR positive nasal swabs compared to folks that got the placebo. So I think it does do really a tremendous job actually of protecting you against it. We just don't know with the messenger RNA, the two ones that are approved here so far, exactly how good it is at preventing uh, the asymptomatic infection. So that's the bigger part of it. In terms of medications, it's been both frustrating and, and, and some of it's good. I mean, the steroid uh, uh, that we use now, dexamethasone, for people who are really getting ill, whose oxygen is dropping, who are developing pneumonias, it's a great treatment. Uh, the remdesivir has been approved for a bit earlier on. And then, of course, we have the monoclonal antibodies. That is, and that's really the only thing we had in the earliest form of the infection before you really get sick from it to try to prevent that. But you're right, there, there, there probably is not going to be any fantastic drug, we hope, before the vaccine that we're already rolling out gets rid of this thing. That's what we would hope for, uh, is that we, we stomp it out with the vaccine before there's even time for more drug development. But they certainly are looking at some other compounds to try to work directly on the virus. But it's true, it takes a long time to develop drugs uh, against a virus like that. The vaccine, particularly with this new messenger RNA for, uh, format, has been amazingly fast. And we hope that that's really our ticket out of this uh, already. You know, I'm going to jump to another question that has exactly to do with that. And how, if drugs are typically tested for years and years, how did they come up with an approved vaccine within months? And also, do we know, can we know what the long-term effects really are or are going to be? Yeah, I mean, absolutely key to, to what we've done. And it's really, I think, one of the biggest 
one of the biggest advancements uh, in science, really, in a hundred years. It's been extraordinary. You, you don't know how to compare it to, to antibiotics and vaccines in general, but this is such a quantum leap forward because you're exactly right. Previously, bringing a vaccine to market, I think the record was something like four years with whooping cough. But what happened is this messenger RNA technology is not really that new. There's an mRNA vaccine for the flu, for Ebola, for uh, I think even the rabies. They haven't been extra good, though, because it's been very difficult to get that very delicate piece or strand of RNA into people's cells to make it do the thing that we need it to do. So with the kind of white hot intensity of every major pharmaceutical company in the world working on this, we made some pretty rapid advances. And the shortcoming uh, for Moderna, for example, has been a company around for more than 10 years. Their entire purpose in life is to make mRNA, uh, mRNA vaccine. So it's not a new attempt and a new technology. But what it did was it allowed us to launch forward very rapidly to those clinical trials. Now, those clinical trials didn't shortcut at all. And it's probably been the most studied uh, thing by the FDA and other, other bodies uh, ever, really. But the platform allowed us to skip all of the growing up of virus, like in eggs that we do for the flu, purifying the virus, maybe chopping it up, repurifying it. And so all those things take months to years to accomplish. And we were able to just, you know, just skip right over that. But we got to those clinical trials. And you're talking about tens of thousands of people that were tested with that vaccine to see how safe and effective it was. So nothing was skipped at all in those all important trials. It's just that the technology allowed us to jump right forward into those things and not spend months to years on growing the virus and trying to achieve all of those things that would have taken a long time otherwise. And what about the long-term effects? I mean, how can we possibly know? Well, you're exactly right. But here's how I typically look at that. Number one, if you look at side effects from vaccines, they generally aren't long-term at all unless they're very, very short-term. The effects that people have from vaccines are generally right up front. Yes, we've seen in flu viruses back in the, in the 70s that you had the Guillain-Barre syndrome and some temporary neurologic uh, syndromes. Now, people recovered in almost all those circumstances, and you were still a lot safer getting the vaccine than getting the flu that year. Um, but it turns out that long-term side effects per se, something that hits you after a year, is extraordinarily uncommon in a vaccine. And if you compare that to the long-term side effects of COVID-19, it's a statistical no-brainer. I, I sort of laughed. I was talking to the local press uh, here in town about that. And the first day they rolled out the vaccine in England, two healthcare workers had a bit of a reaction. They got an EpiPen. They all did fine. They went home. But during the time we were talking about those two people that were fine, uh, for those 30 minutes, 70 or 80 people died in the United States alone of COVID-19. So to the extent that there could ever be a long-term side effect, which is extremely uncommon in general in a vaccine, we know that there are huge problems. Even the people that recover and don't die of COVID, the long COVID syndrome, people have foggy headedness compared taste and smell that go on for a long time and other symptoms fatigue. So it really, there are a lot of long-term side effects of the thing we're trying to prevent. Mm -hmm. It's true. If you received the vaccine, you said you could still carry, be a carrier and give somebody else COVID, but you would probably be asymptomatic. So do you recommend that everybody still wear masks? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no question that very few people get symptomatic at all, but still 5% of people do get symptomatic disease. They may have a cough or some other stuff like that. And so it's not a perfect vaccine, but it was darn near perfect at preventing somebody from getting really ill and certainly dying. And in that sense, it, it really was. 
So even if you get the vaccine and are fully uh, vaccinated, there about 5% of those cases could be in those people. And certainly they could pass it on to other people. Um, and even the people that don't have any symptoms, uh, we sometimes, uh, you know, we, we can't be certain of how many people might have a subclinical or asymptomatic infection just because we haven't fully studied it. We expect that it's quite good at that too, but those data are a little bit farther downstream for us to get back. So until then, uh, it's still, I think, important for us to try to socially distance and wear masks because even if you're in a party with all people who've been vaccinated, you have your own little herd, right, of people, and you can sort of gather together for dinner and have a party, and that's great because all of you are probably protected. But we have to remember that we're all in a larger herd, either the healthcare workers of the patients they're taking care of, the elderly relative of one of the people at that party, and you might be around other people that wouldn't be fully protected yet or haven't been vaccinated yet. The end game here is to get enough people vaccinated so that we all have a large herd that is largely immune, and that's when we can finally take off the masks and try to live life a little bit more normally. And when do you predict that will happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone has been satisfied with the pace of this thing, although it is obviously speeding up. There's no question about that. So, you know, I think best scenario, um, we, we look at being able to relax some of this stuff in the fall, very honestly. Uh, what we don't want to do is to get back to the cold weather again next year without having completed this. Um, because we found in the summertime, it's really funny, uh, the numbers kind of, you know, they kind of stabilized and went down a little bit in the summertime. And people kept asking me, why didn't it go away? And, and, and my answer was, maybe it did go away. Maybe, maybe this is away. Maybe this is good. Uh, and we found out in the wintertime that it really was. Uh, so we hope we don't get into the cold weather next time. Well, I mean, it seems like the numbers are going down and you watch TV and it says numbers are going down. But then I have to ask the question, are the numbers really going down or are fewer people getting tested? Have all the test sites now turned into vaccination sites and are the people still getting tests? So do we really have accurate numbers? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. Um, it is true that the more you test, the more you find. But I'll tell you what's not subject to those kind of variations. That's hospitalizations. And at my own hospital, we had 172 people at maximum uh, a few weeks ago in the hospital. And we were down to 70 some odd today. So I th and, and the hospitalizations follow the cases by a couple of weeks because when people get diagnosed um, to the extent that they're being tested, they have to have about a week or so or more before they get sick enough to require hospitalization, those, those that do. And so you can be pretty confident that the cases started going down a little bit before the hospitalization started going down. And down they have indeed gone a pretty, pretty nicely right now. So I think the cases really are down. But you're exactly right. The numbers do somewhat depend on, on testing. Um, and we still need to, I think, when we talk about putting kids back in school and these sorts of gatherings that we need to have, I think testing should still be a very important part of our screening and preventing infections, to be sure. Mm -hmm. And so this is a new one I hadn't heard before, but someone is asking, will we be required to have the vaccine to carry on a normal life? This person has heard that they're creating a COVID vaccine passport that you may be required to have and carry when you travel. Have you heard anything like this? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about that sort of thing. I think that the, the one downside of such is that you can't be sure, right? You can't be certain that a person who's been vaccinated, because as we talked about, you know, one, there's, there's a 5% chance of failure in that even so. Um, I think the kicker, 
um, is just making sure that everybody gets vaccinated. Um, I think if we focus on that as our primary goal, rather than cordoning off all the people who've been vaccinated or cordoning off all the people who haven't, I think that's a much more fruitful kind of exercise. Because you know, during the 09 flu pandemic, we, we vaccinated 21 million people in a week. I mean, we can do better than what we're doing now. And if we can get to those kind of numbers, that whole concept will quickly become obsolete, I hope. I hope so, too. How long does the vaccination actually last? So will we have to be vaccinated every year? Does it last eight months? Will we need booster shots to sort of help with all the new strains? Yeah, it, it is the question right now, of course. And, and there are a lot of ways to think about it. If you look at just, for example, natural infection without the vaccine, you know, the, we're sort of warranted by the CDC for 90 days, if you will, for our immunity and not to have to not to have to quarantine if we're around a case, if we've had the, uh, the, the natural infection. And they actually extended that just uh, really recently to the vaccine as well. So we count on at least 90 days of immunity, but there are some good uh, there's some good data from uh, from Alex Sete and out in San Diego near you, who came out with a paper in Science that suggested that natural immunity lasts out at least to eight months. So despite a few, a very few of those cases that do seem to have recurrences or, or repeat infections in those folks, it's very rare. And most people's immunity probably lasts out a number of months. We would anticipate that the vaccine, which gives as good or better antibodies as a natural infection does, would probably last that long, too. We can't say that for sure, though, because it hasn't been around that long to know. But the good news is that question is already baked into the clinical trials that have been underway for a long time. So those folks that started the trial some months ago, we will know if they start getting infections, they'll be months ahead of some of the people that will have really started getting the vaccine in real time. And so if, for example, the folks in the trial start getting less protected compared to the guys that didn't get the vaccine earlier on out 18 months, well, we'll know that we're going to have to think about doing that booster. Um, and, you know, if you look at those uh, look at those variants, for example, some of them may, in fact, have a little bit less effectiveness um, from the vaccine. But we'll know that moving forward, we hope. We think it's still effective in large part, but it may have less effectiveness. And the longer we go without vaccinating people uh, and the less careful we are about just allowing this virus to replicate around, uh, you know, you're basically, you think of it like as a sports team, you're in a sporting events, a, a event against a team that is constantly replacing its players with better, stronger, faster, and smarter players. You, know, you need to keep your guard up all the way to the final horn. Um, you can't just declare victory and forget about this. We need to continue to be vigilant. And those boosters that you talk about are, in fact, in the works. Already the mRNA platform, and that's the other beauty of this mRNA, we can actually just take a new sequence that corresponds to the, these new mutations in the variants, plug it into the machine. The machine will spit out a new string of RNA. We can vaccinate people with it, and it will produce the new protein that corresponds exactly to those mutants. And so our immune system will get a boost and a preview at that, the new variant. So that's already underway, and it is possible that that could happen. There are two paths here. Number one is the path of smallpox. Smallpox couldn't really mutate. We saw the last case of smallpox in 1977 in Somalia. We choked it out. It was gone forever, we hope. Um, but then there's flu, and flu mutates and causes changes so fast that we can't keep up with it with our technology. And so maybe there'll be mRNA vaccines against that that will help us with that in the future. But we have to make another vaccine every year because it mutates faster than we can keep up with it. 
Coronavirus is probably somewhere in the middle, but we don't need to be sitting around not vaccinating people while some of those variants keep cropping up. And do you think that if someone is vaccinated and then is not vaccinated for the next few years, if they do get COVID, might they still have effects from the first vaccine and not get quite as sick as if they had never been vaccinated? I think absolutely. I mean, there's no question. Partial immunity is a real thing. I mean, I mean, an unvaccinated, completely immune, naive person, the virus just has the jump on you. But at the very least, uh, there are a lot of different targets that our immune system throws um, at a uh, antibodies at a virus. So it could be that, um, you know, some of these variants will make you partially sick, uh, less sick than it would have absolutely had you not been vaccinated, because it's not just the one area that they mutate, um, you know, that gets away from the vaccine. We do have other targets. So I think it's, it's certainly a good chance uh, in the same way that the targets have been shown to escape somewhat from the immunity of the vaccine, but not completely. The vaccines still work in a large measure. We just don't want these things to keep accumulating these mutations and variations that might make it better and better at evading our antibodies that we get as a result of that vaccine. That over time could be a problem. And it's why we're in a race. I mean, we're in a game of chicken against this against this virus. We, we have the lane we want to pull into uh, of safety from the vaccine. We just want to make sure there's something left of our car before we get there with all the deaths that we've had and the potential ways that that virus is going to continue to make its changes and make our vaccines less effective. So it's why I get very uh, you know exercised about the speed of this vaccine program. We've got to get it out there and get it into people so that we can put this thing to bed. And currently, people who are fully vaccinated, do you think it's safe for them to hang out and socialize with other people that are fully vaccinated? A, a very, very controversial issue. And, and you'll see people take either side of that. I think it's certainly, uh, it is the case that those people are not likely to get sick from one another. We, we know this, we think they are protected. I think the one wrinkle in that is that as long as there is a fair amount of community transmission, and it may vary from town to town for that matter, you still have the chance of being exposed to a person who's not really symptomatic and not sick, or one of those 5% even who are gonna get sick in a day or two, and then you could potentially just carry that back to someone who's not yet vaccinated. So I think it's probably a little early to just completely throw caution to the wind, but there's no question that if you're someone who's not around other people and you're not likely to be exposed to someone who'd be at risk, yeah, it's getting a lot safer to be around someone who is also vaccinated if you are, because the chance of it happening within that little group of people, one of those people getting sick is quite low in the same way we want to make it low for the entire population once everybody gets herd immunity. We just have to be careful that that wrinkle, that that small herd you're in is frequently part of a larger herd that you're going to sprinkle out into after that dinner party and could expose somebody else. So let's talk a little bit about risk versus reward and the fact that a lot of people are just saying they're hesitant to get the vaccine. And what would you say to these people? And the second part of that is, who do you think it's most important for to get this vaccine? Yeah. So the first part, um, the first part is the risk versus benefit. And, and the way I think of it is, and it's important that you that you couch it that way, because it's not just the risk of the vaccine. It's the risk of the vaccine versus the risk of COVID-19. Now, I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to bug out of the point that the vaccine is safe. I think it's very safe. Uh, and it was tested on thousands of people. You will find somebody today who gets sick after the vaccine. But that's why you do control trials. You found the same number of people getting sick after the placebo shot as well. Um, so if you vaccinate 50 million people, which we have, 
there are going to be some deaths in those people within a week or two after whatever time you choose, vaccinated or not. And so we have to be careful to not just say, oh, well, somebody got the vaccine and something bad happened to them a week later because that many people, something's going to happen uh, to a few people anyway. So I think of it this way. The human brain does not do well at judging between two very small probability risks. I'll give you an example. We, when there's a commercial airline crash, people get very distressed as they should by that. But the, the real maneuver is not then to say, you know what, I'm not taking an airplane. I'm going in my car and drive 300 miles to my next 10 destinations. That is not a statistically uh, good response to that. Your risk is much, much higher by taking that car. But we seem to have this sort of illusion of control there. And so that really does happen to people. So we're not very good at the same token. Uh, uh, we're, we're not good at saying uh, when we're sick, we want something done. We want an antibiotic, even if it's not going to help us, but just do something as opposed to these kind of preventions like vaccines or cancer screening. We'd rather leave well enough alone if we feel okay. But if you really look at the risk of this, uh, of this, uh, of this vaccine, I give the example of, of, of a kid standing on a diving board and, and uh, if my son who was you know, four years old wanted to jump off the diving board, I would say, come on in, I'm here, I'll catch you, it's safe, you're gonna have fun, you're, you'll be opened up to entire vistas of fun jumping off diving boards. Your friends won't make fun of you if you don't learn to jump off a diving board. But still, sometimes it's just hard because they just say, I'm scared, I'm not jumping in. But the reality, the analogy breaks down there because the real analogy, you've got a big, ugly dog who's on that diving board, and I'm a dog lover, but, but there, there could be a dog on that diving board that's very angry and looking to bite you, and it's also afraid of the water, and it's not coming in after you. So the safe route is to jump in where there's safety. I'm there to catch him. And, and I think that's the thing, because we have to realize that this is a dangerous virus to a lot of people. And that comes to your next question in a second. Who is, who is it most helped? But but I think it, it, there's a real danger to this uh, to this infection, and not just the people who uh, who die of it, obviously, but the people who survive sometimes are left with long-term problems uh, in this. And so I think the statistics are really, they really make up a no-brainer. You're so much safer to get this vaccine because, let's face it, 70 or so percent of Americans, if we look at what herd immunity is, are going to get one or the other. They're going to get the vaccine or they're going to get COVID-19. And to me, it is an absolute no-brainer. Uh, you're talking about a vaccine that has not killed anybody, nobody. Um, and so I think it really breaks down when you really look at what to be afraid of. In terms of who it's most important to give, I think the CDC has by and large been on the money. Um, you certainly want to do several things. You want to give it to healthcare workers because you've got to keep the healthcare apparatus working. We want to be able to take care of people when they get sick and not just COVID-19. Heart attacks and strokes continue to happen. And so we need that system functioning. And so the healthcare workers were an important first step. And also then the oldest people. We know that 40 plus percent of people who die of this infection are, uh, are long-term care occupants. Uh, and so getting the vaccine out to those folks was, I think, of paramount importance. Then you move down the list of age, of medical problems, and frankly, you sprinkle in other things that are important to society, teachers. I mean, we're facing a big problem in kids who haven't been in school for a year. I mean, that all by itself has some devastating effects. And so our politicians out there, heaven help them, I'm not a good one, but, but, but our politicians have to decide for us and with us what other things other than simple risk of the infection in a given person would be important for society. I think teachers would be a good example of that. Amazing. This is so helpful, Dr. Steve. You are the greatest. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you really want to add that you think people need to know about this vaccine? 
Well, I, I think it's, you know, vaccines have always been a charged sort of topic and people have strong feelings about them. And, and what I can tell you is, and let me say this, the CDC, I think, is, is in the best position it's been in a while. There have been some miscues on the part of the World Health Organization and the CDC along the way that made a couple of mistakes. But I think it's important to point out that this is a brand new infection. It's something that we started from ground zero a year ago and not to have even heard of this thing and to have gotten to the place that we have is a great thing. Uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky is the head of the CDC now. Uh, she trained a few years behind me at, at my uh, the program I, I was, and, and I know her to be a fantastic physician, a very strong person. She doesn't care who appointed her, who is you know she, whatever gets her to the truth and the science is what she's going to going to going to go for. So I have a lot of confidence in her, and I think that's going to really spread. I think the guidance coming out of the CDC is getting stronger and stronger. We need answers. And people have to realize, though, that that science sort of advances incrementally. It's not in big quantum leaps usually. And so sometimes, you know, we, we, we get to concepts that help us understand the situation, but the particulars can be quite tough. And what we have to do as healthcare workers and consequently everybody in society, we have to take those concepts that we're learning and begin to extend them to larger and larger questions. And we need to concentrate on what the science is telling us, what the actual studies show us. I mean, the vaccine trials looked at tens of thousands of people, nobody died, and 95% of infections were prevented. You know, when we started out, people said, uh, we'll take 50%. That, that would be a good thing if we got that. We got 95% in the first two players in the game to come out uh, to protect us. It is an extraordinarily amazing result. Um, and so, as I say, for me, um, the, the, the risks are, are, are just are very small compared to the risk of the infection. So I just hope that people will get their information from folks that they can trust, their healthcare workers, somebody that knows the answer. It's tempting to get it from your brother-in-law on the internet or, or, or you know, at, at a family gathering, but just make sure that, the, and, and a lot of the people that are putting information out there can be compelling, charming personalities and, and really great people, but just make sure that they know something about the topic um, and that they know the science. I literally spend a couple of hours a day reading on nothing but coronavirus because I have to. Um, and so just make sure that you find a trusted healthcare worker or someone that can give you the facts of the situation because it really comes down to black and white facts. Um, now, some of the conclusions can be gray, but you need to base what we're, what we're deciding on as, on as straightforward black and white data as we can. Thank you. You are my trusted source, and I am so glad I get to share you with the Hungry Girl audience. We feel so fortunate. So thank you, thank you, and please keep saving the world. You're the greatest, and keep up the amazing work. We love you, Lisa. Always good to be with you. Okay, that was super helpful and informative, and I hope you guys uh, got some great info. I know I did. Dr. Steve is the greatest, so thank you so much for tuning in. Next week, we will be back with yet another episode of Chew the Right Thing. I will be joined by Mikey and Jamie, and we are going to be doing an Aldi haul which we lovingly refer to as an Aldi Haldi. So please, 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 if you like to shop at Aldi, you want to tune in next week. It will be a great one. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast, you can review us, and you can sign up for daily emails at our website, hungry-girl.com. I'm Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl. Till next time, chew the right thing. <laughs>